0: Thank you, Nell. Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 3. If you have a prayer slip or a visitor slip, we'd love to collect those from you right now, and we'll be praying for you in the coming week. This morning, I want to talk to you about amazing grace. We heard it in piano form just a moment ago, and we talk about it all the time. And I would just ask, is it amazing to you, or is it something you yawn at? (laughs) I pray it would be something that regularly we would give pause in the Christian life to remember what God has done for us through Jesus Christ and that if it were not for him and his amazing grace, his unmerited favor uh, to us, we would perish. So what I see in this major development in Romans 3 is a transition from the argument that Paul's been making from chapter 1 verse 18 to chapter 3 verse 20. Of making the argument of the universal guilt of humanity, men and women are lost in their sins, and apart from God intervening, we would remain that way. Wayne Grudem, in his systematic theology, said the history of the human race as presented in Scripture is primarily a history of a man of man in a state of sin and rebellion against God. So, if you're wanting the panorama of Scripture, What's the storyline of the Bible? Uh, It begins in in a garden and actually ends in a garden, and it didn't go well in the first garden as Adam and Eve were tempted and catapulted the human race into sin. And from Genesis 3 onward, you see one debilitating episode after another, and we've all experienced in our life just watching the news cycles, just uh, taking in uh, something recently that's hit Some that are dear to this church body, Uh, the recent crime spree last night, just reminded of the evil and the setbacks and the misery and the tears and the pain um, and the death that comes because of sin. So uh, the human race, the history of the human race as presented in Scripture is primarily a history of rebellion and sin against God and of God's plan of redemption to bring us back to Himself so yes, while the Bible has hard things to say about our heart, about our, our spiritual condition, it is for the purpose that we might see how wonderful and amazing His grace is. The storyline the story of humanity's sin and rebellion doesn't really sit well with sinners. We love to blame shift, don't we? It. You don't have to look far in the Bible to see that happening. When Adam and Eve took the fruit, what does Adam say right off the bat? It's the woman you gave me. Look what she's done. When he was held responsible for the direction of the whole uh, the affair of the garden, he's blame-shifting. Little has changed. We can't bear much of that. And so... We finagle the situations of life by putting our best image forward so others don't see the blemishes. And while we may blame others and put our best image forward, God sees it all. And Romans 1 through 3 is about us understanding how God truly sees us. And the gospel will never be amazing grace until we see ourselves as God sees us. The mirage of happiness in this world causes many to deny the biblical message of how sin separates us from God. The momentary pleasures of the world serve as kind of an anesthetic to the pain of being alienated from God and how sinful patterns work their way out in our lives. Whether it be bitterness or anger, whether it be sexual immorality, any form of selfishness or pride all of this is rooted in the fact that we are sinners by nature and by choice and so consequently holding up the truth of human depravity is often met with scorn and rejection (laughs) why would I want to come and hear a series of messages on this and this is the reason the life expectancy of faithful prophets is low You have, to, you have to go far and wide to, to, to find uh, pulpit ministries that even mention sin, let alone spend time trying to unpack what the scripture says about it. As we look in chapter 3, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's no one who understands and no one who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one, not even you. So, the Bible presents um, the human condition as tragic and rebellious and violent and hurtful and traumatic and hopeless, and the momentary pleasures of this world really will not satisfy. They're here for a moment, then gone. And so, this idea of human depravity and that we've got a real problem, that's met with with a pushback, by and large. Do you believe this? Do you believe that you're a sinner? That you've fallen short of God's glory? Do you believe that you're easily deceived and prone to wander? I love that song we sang a moment ago about God being our shepherd. I'm so glad, aren't you? Prone to wander to Lord, we feel it. We're all over the pasture, we're in the briars, we're we're perilously close to cliffs and bluffs. And so I think it's important for us to pause and really take this in. We live in a time in Christianity where it's popular to enter into a time of deconstruction. I grew up in the church, heard the Bible, maybe was even in ministry. And now people are coming out of the woodwork to vent their deconstruction of their faith, basically, where they say that, um, uh, you know, I'm questioning the Bible. What I learned in church is not true. Um, and then list all the things, negative experiences they've had uh, in their Christian life. And what I think is important for us to take in is that we're affirming what what the Bible says about who we are and our refuge is in Jesus Christ. The truths we talk about now will be true in a decade and in a millennium and for as long as there, are t- there is time. Cast the anchor of your soul onto the truths of God's word and find your identity in Jesus Christ. The reason we preach the Bible and stand upon its authority for what we believe and how we live is because we're convinced in the shifting foundations of this world's philosophies and man-centered remedies, it's a solid rock. Even the hard parts. There will always be those who fall away. I pray it would not be you. And so I think one of the ways people fall away is they have an inaccurate view of where they stand with God and what their true spiritual condition is. The Christian life is described as a long-distance race, and I believe doctrines like we've considered this year in Romans one through three, and we will consider in the coming years, future, is that is what keeps us pressing on in the very presence. Of uh, to our, To the very presence of our redeemer, so in Romans one eighteen through chapter three verse twenty we 've traveled through really a rugged wilderness this year, a wasteland of barrenness, as Paul made the case of our greatest problem being sin, and so this morning we come to emmanuel 's gate, as it were, and we shift to something brighter, and that's, that is god 's remedy. Amazing grace that we, we can be counted righteous, that God counts us righteous apart from the law. Jesus Christ was righteous because he kept the law perfectly, because he was the sinless son of God. You would be righteous and I would be righteous if we kept the law perfectly, but that'll never happen. We've broken it many times over. If we break the law at one point, James says we're guilty of the entire law. And so we find here in Romans 3:21 through26, a great sum of the Bible's message right here. We find in these verses how to deal with our sin, how God has dealt with it, and how to be right with God. If you're wanting a sum of the Bible on how to be right with God, this is it, Romans 3:21 through26. Because I think these verses help us or lead us to think, you know, things aren't right with me. Anybody here this morning feel righteous? <laughs> Just keeping it real. Anybody feel righteous? Perfect? Sinless? While we may tend to laugh that off, that's a serious spiritual state. The wrath of God is revealed because of that. Romans 1.18 says there's a punishment for it. If we don't deal with it according to God's grace, our conscience becomes seared and we're open to everything. R. Kent Hughes, in his comments on Romans 3, pointed out the, the, that the Apostle Paul kind of followed a, a teaching of the rabbis here by quoting several Old Testament quotations to drive home his point, which he did in verses 10 through 18, and he's describing our, our character, and in this section, Hughes goes on to say, for any honest soul today, Ivan Turgeon, Excuse me, Turgenev's admission, I do not know what the heart of a bad man is like, but I know what the heart of a good man is like, and it's terrible. All mankind, all of us, humanity are under the dynamic of sin, and we've inherited that from Adam and taken it on full force. So what hope do we have? Well, I'm glad you asked. Shall we step on the clutch and move to another gear? Look at verse 21. But now, but now, that's a good first point, don't you think? But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. (laughs) We were doomed under the law, but now God has done something by which he can declare sinners righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. That's good news. This takes us back to Romans 1.17, which says, For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. But now, Paul says, one commentator speaks of these verses as the opening of a more pleasant scene. A number of commentators I consulted say this paragraph is one of the most important ever written. And if misunderstood this passage, if we misunderstand it, we risk misunderstanding the entire letter to the Romans and the entire Bible. Luther, Martin Luther said, the chief point, the very central place of this letter and of the whole Bible is chapter 3, 21 through 26. But now, Paul says, God has done something. To reverse our state. In Romans 6, 22, but now that you have been set free from sin. Ephesians 2, verse 4, but God, but now God being rich in mercy. In 1 Peter two twenty five, listen to Peter writing to the believers who received his letter, for you were straying like sheep, Describing our lostness, you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. But now have returned to him. Do you remember what it was like before you walked with the Savior? (laughs) Do you remember what it was like to be lost in your transgressions and sins? I think that's a healthy thought. Because if there's been no change in what you once lived and what you are now, you have every reason to challenge your conversion. You have every reason to question your salvation. I had a weird experience last night watching the wonderful football game of the University of Kentucky playing LSU. Let me tell you about it. (laughs) I've got a hostile crowd here. Well, as many of you know, that's where I went to school. And I remember sitting in that stadium when I was a student there. And these memories came back to me just watching a game. I was two months a believer there. And all of these wonderful experiences of, of God's grace rescuing and saving me from my sins. Opening up new opportunities to grow in his word, and to serve the Lord. When thoughts like that come to you, I used to be this, but now I praise be to God for what he's done. But now God has worked in such a way that he has declared me righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. I think that's a wonderful way to begin this new section of Romans. Do you have a but now in your life? Where you have turned from your sins and the guilt that plagues you, the conscience that troubles you, and placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ where he died on that tree, a once-for-all sacrifice for you. They put him in a borrowed tomb, and three days later he rose from the dead, appeared to over 500 people, including the disciples, has ascended into heaven and is coming back again. You can trust him. But now, that's a great statement. Now, I want to move secondly to to terms of our hope. Terms of our hope. And there are four things I want to look at in particular. The first would be that we're, we're declared righteous apart from the law. When Martin Luther defended the doctrine of justification in the 16th century, he used a Latin phrase which meant, at the same time, just and sinner. So maybe you're wondering in your mind, how can God declare us righteous when I know what goes on in my heart? We're gonna close the service in just a minute with this song, In My Heart. And the second stanza says, In my heart, there's a treason. We know what that is. The while believers in Jesus Christ, we still have a sin nature So Luther, in communicating this justification by faith, said that we are at the same time just or righteous and sinner. And this gets to the heart of justification by faith alone. Though in and of itself I'm a sinner, once I've received the benefit of Christ's redemption, His payment for my sins, I am just, I am righteous in the sight of God because of who Jesus Christ is. As a sinner, by virtue of my own performance, I would surely be condemned. This is not a legal fiction. This is a legal declaration of the court of heaven that a sinner who turns from their sins and trusts in Jesus Christ will be declared righteous in the court that matters, ultimately. R.C. Sproul um, gives a helpful discussion in his commentary on this justification by faith, being declared righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. And he does a helpful discussion between Protestant theology and Roman Catholic theology. And I thought it would be important because we live in a community with where we have many Roman Catholic friends to be more conversant in what really is the issue. And it's important. Some people think that Protestants trust Christ for their redemption, whereas Roman Catholics trust completely in themselves and in their own good deeds, Sproul Sproul writes. That's simply not true. The Roman Catholic Church does not teach and has never taught that people are justified on the basis of their own good works without any need of the redemptive activity of Christ. What Rome objects to, however, is the concept of faith alone. Faith alone. Faith in Jesus Christ alone. Let's sketch the difference. It starts in an understanding of the first step in justification. And by justification, I want you to be conversant with that. As we walk through Romans, it's being declared righteous in the courtroom of heaven by faith in Christ. So Protestantism teaches that the instrument by which we are brought into a justified relationship with Jesus Christ is by faith and faith alone. Rome deals with the problem of justification in two different ways. In the first instance, justification occurs through the instrument of baptism, which in the Roman Catholic Church, is in infancy when the grace of justification is infused into the soul of the child. The child is then regarded as being in a state of grace for as long as he or she keeps himself herself pure from mortal sin, a sin so grievous that it has the ability to destroy the grace of justification. So if a person commits a mortal sin, however, there's a second manner by which the person can be justified. The Roman Catholic Council of Trent in the 16th century described the sacrament of penance as the second way of justification for those who had made shipwreck of their souls through some grievous behavior. In this sacrament of penance, There are different parts or aspects. First, a a penitent person must make a confession of his sins to the priest. Then the priest pronounces absolution. But the issue in the 16th century was not confession or even priestly absolution. The real issue is the the next dimension of justification, which taught that in penance, the penitent sinner was required to do works of Satisfaction. These works were defined by the Roman Catholic Church as bestowing upon penitent merits of congruity, merits that were fitting for God to justify that person again, based on their performance. And so the penitent must have faith in Jesus, but he also must produce real righteousness within himself in order to be justified. It would be fair to simplify the Roman Catholic view like this, justification happens as a result of a combination of faith plus works, which I think can accurately be said, equals nothing. Pro- Protestantism says that we cannot add anything to the merit of Jesus Christ the only merit that avails for our justification is his merit, his sinless life, his death in our, in our place. And therefore, we believe that the true believer will then show a manifest change of life and bring works worthy of repentance and works of obedience out of a life of faith in him alone. This is important in understanding the gospel. We bring nothing to the table with regard to our salvation. This righteousness of God is his way of giving us right standing with himself and is in no way dependent on the law and is not earned by fulfillment of any requirements. Otherwise, we would have some room to boast. I know it's faith. What we might say, be tempted to say, I know it's by faith. But see, my works have really pushed me over the line And ultimately, we could say, I just did better than you did. I came across the work of Solomon Stoddard this week. Stoddard was a Puritan who wrote, among other things, the safety of appearing at the day of judgment in the righteousness of Christ. What a great title. The safety of appearing on the judgment day in the righteousness of Christ And he wrote, the general tendency of this book um, is to show that our claim to the pardon of sin and acceptance with God is not found on anything wrought in us, not anything worked out in us or acted by us, but only on the righteousness of Christ. And this word of good news is not new. It says in verse 22 that the law and the prophets bear witness to this. This isn't something that came up in the book of Romans. We can go all the way back to the garden, and there God gave a promise when he said, from the seed of woman, one would come who would destroy the, crush the head of the tempter, of the evil one, and all through the Bible. When Jesus rose from the dead, this is how he met with his disciples. He said, everything written about me, in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms they must be fulfilled and then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them thus it it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead this is spoken of all through the revelation of God and it's the sum of salvation that would come to us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that if whoever whoever That means you, whoever believes in him, should not perish but have everlasting life. Secondly, this faith in Jesus Christ, this belief in Jesus Christ. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This well-meant offer, the gospel. It's astonishing that someone could think that somehow... And they could appear before the judgment of God after hearing the gospel over and over and over again say, I just didn't, I didn't know. There's no distinction. The key to having the righteousness of God is faith. So what's the faith that saves? Okay, as you're thinking through your relationship with God this morning, And you come to understand right now that apart from faith in Jesus Christ, you cannot know the salvation that God proclaims and has brought forth through Jesus Christ apart from faith in him. So what kind of faith is this? Faith has really become one of those terms in our culture that means very little because you don't know what somebody's talking about. What's the faith that saves? If I must have faith in Jesus Christ, what needs to go on within me in order to know his salvation? Maybe this will help. Three components of saving faith. One, you have to have knowledge of what God has done through Christ. Knowledge of it. And you're familiar familiar with it if you're in this gathering today. You know that God has acted in history. He has brought forth His Son. His Son has lived a sinless life. Jesus Christ has died and risen from the dead. And that this message requires a response. You have the knowledge of that this morning. But that's not enough to save you. Satan believes that. The devil believes that. secondly not just knowledge you need to have agreement you need to have agreement with this with this message where you're saying yes 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 i believe that's true i believe that jesus really did walk on earth i believe all of these things the bible are attesting to i really see my own sin that i'm not a commandment keeper i'm a rebel I've really come to see by looking at Romans 1 through 3 that, that it's not, I'm not right. I'm not right with God and I'm not right with a bunch of other things. And so yes, I agree. I need a savior. I need a redeemer. And that redeemer is Jesus Christ. I agree. But that alone is not enough to save you. There's a third component that's very important and saving faith, and that is that you must personally trust Him. Your mother can't do that for you. Your dad, as much as he may love you and want you to follow the Lord, he can't do it for you. Your friend can't do it for you. The faith that saves is understanding what God has done through Jesus Christ, agreeing with that message, and then within your heart and mind and soul and will, You say, Lord, save me a sinner. I trust you. I believe in you. I believe you're the only one who can forgive me, make me right with God, and give me any hope for anything. Trusting in Jesus Christ means putting our confidence in him to forgive our sins, to make us right with God, and to empower us to live the way he taught us. That's the fruit of saving faith. As we begin to walk in the obedience of faith that Paul emphasizes so clearly in the book of Romans, trusting in Jesus Christ is the only way we all can be saved. It's the only way we can be saved, personally trusting him. Remember the Philippian jailer? Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you shall be saved. Notice with me, thirdly, justified by his grace as a gift. Salvation is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And notice verse 23. We mention this often in the Roman road. Here it is in context For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift. Now, what does it mean to fall short of his glory? John Stott in his commentary references um, Bishop Mule, who put it dra- dramatically by, by stating it this way. The prostitute, the liar, the murderer are short of God's glory, but so are you. Perhaps they stand at the bottom of a mine where they mine for coal. The sinner is at the bottom of a, a mine, the person with so many difficulties and rebellion in their life. They, they're at the bottom of the mine looking looking up. And you you're on the crest of a mountain. And Bishop Mule rightly points, but you are as little able to touch the stars as they. We all have fallen short. Whether you're in the mine or on a mountaintop compared to human righteousness and comparatively, we're no more able to touch the stars than anyone else which ought to bring about a fresh season of repentance and humility in our life. The law measures the distance between God and his creatures. Human righteousness is our attempt to bridge that distance by our own efforts. To fall short of God's glory is to fall wo- woefully short. And what do we fail to reach on our own? We fail to reach on his own, his glory. And what does that mean to fall short of his glory? Certainly to fall short of his commands, his obedience, his obedience but I think ultimately to fall short of His presence. All of us have sinned and our sin disqualifies us from ever entering into His presence. It keeps us from the presence of God. Do you realize that is the joy as the Bible comes to the end? What is the joy of heaven? What makes heaven so inviting? To the believer and so hope-filled, sure, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Sure, there will be no more trips to the cemetery or the ICU unit. But what makes heaven the joy it will be is that God's there. And in his presence, we will live day and there's no night. It's his presence that illumines the whole thing. Perfect peace, perfect rest, perfect work, perfect adventure. This salvation, this gap that we could never bridge on our own. This is the greatest gift you could ever receive. And what do you need to do for a gift to be brought into your life? You need to receive it. The gospel calls us to repent and to believe, to receive the gift of eternal life by faith. This is the greatest gift you could ever receive. Salvation is a gift. That means you can't earn it. You'll never deserve it. It's based upon Christ alone. Would you trust him today? And finally, we come to verse 24, where we see God's redemption through the Redeemer. And verse 24, we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That is a beautiful word that he's our redeemer. He has purchased us with his blood. Is the picture behind it? He has come to us while we are on the slave market of sin and death, and has redeemed us from that by his blood and righteousness. In him is forgiveness from his sins, from our sins, according to the riches of his grace. He is our redeemer. The redemption of God is found in Christ, who purchased us by his blood. While we were in bondage. Last week we sang, And Can It Be? And I love, um, I think it's the third verse, maybe the second verse. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, the bondage of it. Wesley goes on to say, fast bound in sin and nature's night. And then he says, This is what made the difference. Your eye diffused a quickening ray. In other words, in my bondage, in my cell, With my chains, you came, and you brought a ray of light and hope. And I woke, and the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Martin Luther said that when the devil came knocking on the door of his heart, he would send the Lord Jesus to the door. And Christ would say to the evil one, Martin Luther used to live here, but he's moved out. I'm here now. Then says Luther, when the devil would see the nail prints on Christ's hands and his pierced side, he would take flight immediately. It's a powerful thing to know the Lord. It's a wonderful thing to know the Lord Jesus Christ in a saving relationship. That's amazing grace that God would come and so reach down to us and bring this to us. The mercy spoken of in these verses is found in the fountain that God has opened in the person of Christ. And for those who turn from their sins and come to Christ by faith, He is able to wash you clean, restore your life, all that the locusts have eaten. Anybody here look back on past years and there's mourning? All of us share that together. Oh, what the locusts have eaten. And the glory of the gospel as spoken through the prophet Joel that he restores what the locusts have eaten to give you a future and a hope. The coming of Jesus Christ was God's decisive act to bring his grace to you and to me. And you know the grace of our Lord Jesus that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. That means he took on human flesh so that you by his poverty might become rich in salvation. God is just and being gracious to us in the gospel. Would you receive Christ now and live in the joy of his salvation? I often think this when we gather. I don't believe there's a a more (laughs) important gathering anywhere in this city than when God's people gather together as the church and the gospel is preached. Because we're not selling thumbtacks or rubber bands. We're talking about eternal things, and yes, we really believe it. That to reject Jesus Christ is to perish. He said so. Or to be saved and follow him. Erwin Lutzer summed it up best, I think. One minute after you slip behind the parted curtain, you will either be enjoying a personal welcome from Christ or catching your first glimpse of gloom as you've never known it. Either way, your future will be irrevocably fixed and eternally unchanged. The time to come to Christ is now because today is the day of salvation. Would you bow with me in prayer? Oh, Lord, we're so grateful that we can say with the Apostle Paul, but now, but now, Because of your righteousness, because of your grace, because of your mercy to us, you have spoken in these days through your Son. And I pray in these closing moments that we would give our heart and soul to these, to these matters. I pray for those that are right now dealing with issues of surrender, dealing with issues of what do, what do I believe? maybe struggling right now? Am I going to go the way of the world? Or am I going to surrender my life to Christ? Oh, Lord, give grace right now to see what truly matters and what will carry the day through all of eternity. Your word says that all who trust in you will be in no way disappointed. Oh, yes, we will have disappointments in this life, but your your promises are true and sure. And may we in this service, resting in them, acting on them, believing on them, lead us now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing. If there are needs on your heart, on behalf of the elders, just would say we're here to support and to pray and to shepherd any way that we could help you. Let us know. Let's stand together and sing.